Welcome to We Gotta Talk, a live weekly talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. From health to relationships to alternative lifestyles and more, the one thing you will always get is a deep dive. Tons of details, juice, dirt, the works. You get it. I'm Sunny, a 15-year veteran of TV news, freelance writer, blogger, mom of three, and wife. But most of all, I'm just a die-hard oversharer, someone who's genuinely curious about, well, everything around me. And I can't wait for you to join in on these conversations that I promise will impact, inspire, and entertain you. Now, let's talk. On today's show, we have comedian and comedy write, a comedy writer whose work has appeared on E! Comedy Central, MTV, Key & Peele, HBO Max, and more. She's been on comedy tours throughout the world and most recently was comic in residence for Carnival. She is host of Amazon Prime's New American Road Trip. But most importantly, she is a 2001 graduate of Montour High School. <laughs> Yay! One of the only people who, I might add, can rock short bangs. Thank you. There is really everything to me. Thank you. I appreciate that because there are some people on Twitter that tell me otherwise, and I find them to be very funny. What do you say back to them? I'm just dying for now. I'll be like, it's not my fault. I'm chic. (laughs) They'll be like, what's up with your bangs? And I was like, what's up with your bangs? Like, what's food? I mean, I mean, social media etiquette is, has never been anything to write home about, but I'm sure when you put out there and your opinions are like intertwined with your work too, people probably feel like they can say all sorts of things to you. Yeah, I am. Um, I think I have a, I have it good compared to a lot of other comedians that I've heard. Um, I have a really good, solid fan base. I very rarely get trolled. And I say that now, like, which probably I'll get, yeah, knock on all the wood. Um, but I have, you know, I have like fashion forward followers. I have environmentalist followers. I have people that love traveling the world kind of followers. I very rarely, and I, and you know, they're, they're across the board, left, middle and right. So it's not, for some reason, it just works with them. Now I have every now and then where I offend, um, you know, I do a lot of Catholic jokes, obviously, but I do, I offend them uh, in that way. And I think that's like, that's not bad. I mean, what is as as a current and like practicing Catholic? I mean, yeah. kind of. Ca- I'm a cafeteria Catholic, but like, what is there left to be offended that our priests have not already done? Sure. I mean, like, you know, I say that lovingly, and I, I the church acknowledges its issues, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, but you know, I'll go a little deeper, son. I was actually baptized by one of the shielded clergymen, like in the huge uh, Pennsylvania grand jury report. Are you serious? So I'm like in a photo with a pedophile who just baptized me. So like I have a bit of a grudge. Yeah, no, I get it. Listen, here, here's the thing too. Like I was trying to decide education options for the kids and there's a whole, you are a Catholic school kid I, for a time. I was a public school. I loved kid. it. I loved it. Yeah, you did? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this whole thing. I overthink things quite a bit, mm-hmm. but my whole concern was uh, I don't want to get into this. If there's people listening that go to my kid's school, they're going to feel judged. I'm not judging. This is just my hang up. But, you know, there are things that you're taught in any religion, really, that I just worried maybe would become an internal dialogue, especially for my daughters. Yeah. So I overthought it in a whole thing, but it's good to see that you are happy. 
with yeah i would have done it a bit different um but that wasn't really up to me it was more of a where where could uh, my mom decided where could her children go that where she felt safe and they were they had a bit of uniformed right um but you know i think that it was i don't know i, I we didn't have social media in those times we didn't have you know, kids thinking for themselves. So I understand why you would put them in a safer godlike mm -hmm. place. Um, now I think there's so many different schools. Uh, my goddaughter goes to this um, school in Los Angeles. Obviously, it's via Zoom right now, where it's a majority of it is speaking Italian. Oh. And that, yeah, that is to me, she's uh, going, she just turned six and a half. Yeah. So she's now seven. So it, it, she's learning full Italian at the age of six and seven. And it's a wonderful school and it's a MAGA program that like, not MAGA, but Magna uh, program. And it's one of those programs where, you know, she wouldn't have gotten that education in a Catholic school. I learned a little bit of French, but mm -hmm. I would have loved to have experienced more languages growing up as an elementary school kid, because sure. that's when you can, you can retain all that information. Yes. The emergency they say before the age of 10, I'm actually learning Italian. This right. is, this has become my quarantine thing and yeah. it's going better than I thought. But I do think, um, it's important to introduce kids to that kind of stuff early. They're just so much more malleable and they absorb things. Speaking of Italian, am I noticing a Cornish challenge? It's funny because it looks like it, right? But it is, I swear to God, it's just a hot pepper. Oh, okay. <laughs> right Where's the it is. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And I, ha I do think about wearing mine. I have one. I do think about wearing it often, but like I, I already like I go full Italian all the time. Always, um, my family speaks fluent Italian. My cousin is an opera singer who sings in Italian, um, and I, I am actually going back to learning my French and, and texting a lot more in French, just because it's helping me speak, you know, French Canadian and such. It just helps my language kind of work. But I'm, you know, I, in every show, bless everybody's heart. They're always like Cocciola. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, nobody knows how to say any name that has like a couple of vowels and an I. It's like it's devastating. Horrible. It's a horrible. And it's funny. I was scrolling through you to text you earlier. And I have like, when you're from Pittsburgh, you know, a thousand Coakley's. So I had like, really? yes, because like my, my dad's family like knows a couple. And I'm like, I wonder if they're related. But are, um, they, are they all named Lewis? Well, there's a, there's two that are named. <laughs> yeah. Then yes, one's a realtor and then one's uh, uh, hopefully recovering from uh, his latest stroke, which yeah. was my uncle. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, we call yeah. him uncle. Yeah. He's my uncle. Um, he is my grandfather's. He's my grandfather's brother. They were okay. about 30 years apart, weirdly enough, or 25 years apart or something. Um, in age. So he was my uncle Lewis Jr. Coakley is what we call him, if that's the right one you're thinking yeah. of. Uh -huh. um, he was also in real estate as well. And then little Louis Jr., um, who I always thought was 20 years younger than me, but apparently is only five. I mean, I just don't know <laughs> how my family operates. Wait, I my family told me this story. It's on my dad's side of the family, which is a whole thing in and of itself. There's all this drama and crime that I'm coming to find as an adult. Oh, yeah. I did not realize. Um, but anyway, um, it's a thing. You really don't know all of your cousins until no. you, like, I'll get messages on Facebook. I'm like, I'm your cousin. I'm like, okay. And I asked my mom and she's like, oh yeah, he's related through her. Yeah. And, I'm like, 
it's like a it's a self-discovery process just really existing as an Italian American. Yeah, I mean getting older too, we I have the bandwidth now to understand who my cousins are whereas when I was growing up like all I could really think of was band camp. Like all I could process was like I have a band camp trip once a year and I have to like be ready for that trip and and every now and then going to like the Pittsburgh playhouse and doing a theater production or like going down south to Florida and like doing something in Orlando for um, another theater production. But it was not, I didn't care about family members back then. And now, and that's something like as a kid, you just, you just don't care. They just exist. They feed you and that's pretty much it. And then you get a little bit older and you have this bandwidth where you're like, and this is ancestry.com too. And like 2023 and me and all these things where you just are like, what if I just like open up this door and then you have all this family in Italy and you're like, oh my God, I could go to Italy anytime I want. And I have all this family in uh, Czechoslovakia and Russia as well for my mom's side. So the bandwidth is what I mean. And like, and I, I legitimately mean that. Like I, I would go and spend the summers at uh, Uncle Junior's um, to swim in the pool, but like that was, and then Christmas time. And then that was it. Like, I wasn't like checking in with them every day. That was just like how families operated was like, you'd see certain cousins every now and then, and then they'd circle back um, and come into your life. And then now that Louis Jr. Jr. I don't even know what Louis the third um, <laughs> goes back. Now he's like a realtor and everyone always confuses me and him. And I'm like, I don't know how you could confuse that. But, and my father's name is Louis too. So they like Louis, Louis Jr. Louis the third. It's just ridiculous. It's so many. I really try. And I, I feel like by this point in the podcast, I'll probably have already done your intro. But for anybody who, who doesn't know by this point, because this is going to be on Facebook too, Jess has this prolific comedy career now, but we went to high school together. We have a history. And so that's like why we know so much about each other's personal lives. Yeah. But I found myself <laughs> trying to explain to go back to the family thing and the finding out who you are and where you're from. I've tried so hard since I moved out of Pittsburgh to explain to people what it means to be Italian American from Pittsburgh and, and the very strong cultural vibes that come from there. I think we grew up thinking the whole world was Italian and Catholic and we just... I don't know. I mean, it was very myopic, but there are there are traditions, there are recipes, there are things that are passed down. Like we, like you talk in your comedy, which I love. I listened to last, I don't know, I guess the beginning of quarantine when the album or the list on iTunes came out, but I re-listened to it. And every time you make a McKee's Rocks reference, like, so it's a small town outside of Pittsburgh and like our whole families are from there. So you cannot throw rock in McKee's Rocks. Sorry for that term. Without like a relative or a friend of your parents or, and it's a really special thing, but it's hard once you move out. Like, I wonder if you miss that sense of community that like we, we totally grew up in. Yeah. I think that there are more Italian Americans than we think. Um, and, and, you know, traveling, traveling internationally, but then also traveling domestically, I've met a lot of Italian Catholics. I've also met a lot of Steeler fans outside of the city of Pittsburgh. So you find a connection, Italian American, the traditional Italian American coming through Ellis Island, having your family be here or where, wherever they, they end up migrating to and then settling in Pittsburgh, you know, there's a there's a heavy Italian culture there that when I first moved to California, I was probably a bit relieved to be released from because actually I moved down to Florida first. Mm -hmm. um, to I went to UCF in Orlando where you actually live now. But I, I went to school there and I studied down there and I did a little bit at Full Sail. And I didn't come across a ton of Italians. I came across a ton of Irish, mm -hmm. my first uh, Jewish people, uh, my Boca Raton Jew ladies. Um, <laughs> 
that's how I kind of got introduced to a whole mesh of different cultures. But it was, you know, not until I came to California did I start to really miss, you know, the the seven fishes on Christmas Eve and the Italian traditions. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely was bored at church, but I enjoyed going to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved looking at the the pane glass windows and, and looking at other people that were kind of bored as well. That was a really fun thing for me to do. And then chatting after and having cookies and coffee. But, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, away from Italians. There's actually a few Italians that live in the city that I'm in now. And we, you know, my paisans, we have a thing, you know, we talk with our hands. It's, you know, it's a, a, a really nice way to make friends in California is to have just a big fat Italian dinner with bottles of red wine and to sit around the table and just talk about the old country. It's cool. It's great that you, it's great that you found that point of connection because, you know, I mean, not that you want everything to stay the same. I think an important part, in fact, of evolving and your comedy reflects this and your career does too, is getting uncomfortable, getting into new spaces, being around different people. But um, I had to have you help describe that because for anyone who's not from Pittsburgh, there was like, I don't understand what's so special about this town. And I'm like, ah, there's just so much, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a very, it's a culturally rich city. It's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. And I've talked about it, you know, I've tried to do a, a couple of different projects and every time there's a comedy project that comes through, that's like trying to um, not mock, but mirror Pittsburgh tendencies. They always bring me in to consult, which I think is just a very honorable trait to have is <laughs> they need somebody that kind of knows the comedy of it very well, because organically, you know, I grew up there. I learned sarcasm. I learned um, comedic timing there. I learned, uh, by watching, you know, Italian families um, from home was how I really grasped my sense of humor and was able to kind of contribute uh, in my own way. And I think that also made me a very tomboyish girl um, mm-hmm. that was okay with, you know, being a fashionista at the same time being rough and tough. Um, and that's, I think Pittsburgh kind of can do that to people. Um, and, and you know, one day I'll buy, I'll probably buy a home there just to have for, you know, the, the back and forth. It obviously can't happen right now. <laughs> Yeah, no back and forth right now. <laughs> There's no uh, back and forth. I mean, I'm supposed to, I'm, I have gigs in New York City next week. I have, I'm booked from the October 13th through the 28th in New York, like a, a rooftop shows. Oh and God. they're, but they're hitting a second wave right now. So that's such a bummer. They just, to like, to, your, your career path has been so cool. I think when people think comedy, they think immediately, um, the, you know, the, the stand-up routine, they think the presence, I mean, but your career has shown that like, you can have your hands in this field in like so many different ways with writing, like you said, consulting on some sketches and, and producing. Tell us like where you started and how you even came up with this as something to pursue. Sure. I, I definitely uh, listened to George Carlin albums um, on record when I was growing up as a kid. And I listened to, um, God, Ellen DeGeneres albums. And these are records. These are stand-up records. And they would just have them in the house. My family was musicians too. So it was mixed between Italian music and, you know, comedy. And comedy came from um, Italy as well. And it was just, I grew up watching the Dick Van Dyke show and Nick at Night and um, anything kind of old school. I love Lucy and such. And I, I remember not necessarily processing um, that it would be, you know, fortuitous. I, I, I processed that it could potentially be a job, but I didn't know how to execute it until I started to go to program schools that were like, you know, if you were to become a theater major, this is what it would look like. If you were to become a communications major, this is what it looked like. And I remember the theater thing, 
it didn't hit me as hard. I wasn't a thespian. I remember like going through the um, curriculum and being like, you know, this is not for me. I found myself making fun of uh, it. And I think that's when they were like, why don't you go sit in the corner and structure a joke? And then you can tell us the jokes about theater. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I went and processed like 10 different jokes and then did stand up in the, in the class. And that's when I was, it clicked that, oh, I think that's more of the forum for me. And I won my first, um, it was a stand-up competition. It was all men in it. Um, and it was in the student union of the University of Central Florida. And oh I'll God. never forget this because they like, they, they let me, I was, I applied late to get in and they were like, all right, we'll get in. And then I got in and I like crushed, crushed for like a 20 year old. That's so, awesome. And then that kind of catapulted me into, okay, well now I'm getting an internship. Uh, I got an internship at 96.5 Classic Rock, which is a radio station down there. And then they had me on as like the morning Pittsburgh girl. So oh I still, I still had the accent back then. I still had a little bit of the yinzer going on and they liked that on the radio. And I was actually in dialect classes to, to get rid of it a little bit more too. I had to have it like beaten out of me. At, at yeah. School. And I could go into it. I could go into the accent like a drop of a hat, but I, I can pull it back. And, and I have to sometimes because yeah. it, it really reveals like a different part that no one really is familiar with. They're, it's they're like Philly. And you're like, no, <laughs> even um, the better side of the state. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The better side. You know, by like West Virginia. And everyone's like, <laughs> not exactly how you want to refer to it as. Um, and so from that radio station, I just began to do remote programs and events and pop-up events. And then from there, I ended up getting a TV show um, where I was on the show for, it was 13 episodes, but I was on for five episodes. And then they hired me after that. And that was the WB before it was the CW. So they flew me out to California and I was going to go to New York after school to do stand up in New York because that's where everyone said you sharpen your teeth as a stand up. You really will. You could do three or four shows a night. And your whole goal is to structure material to get on to a late night show mm -hmm. like Conan O'Brien or David Letterman or, you know, now Chelsea Handler or, or et cetera, all those shows. And that is to basically show anyone and everyone what you're capable of in five minutes mm -hmm. as a thread of a joke. And so once I started working in LA, I mean, I just like took off and I couldn't, I didn't stop since I was, I got here. I was working at the clubs at night. I was working at the WB during the day, learning marketing and programming for Charmed and Supernatural and just learning how television really operated from a scripted point of view. And then the reality boom came and that boom was also just as fascinating because I'm reality. I am a personality, a person. And to me, that was also fascinating to structure an A story and a B story and a C story and see that go to air, watch how it does, what characters worked, what characters didn't, and then pull it back for a second season and then do it again. And and as I was growing into my own, like I slowly started to, you know, I, in the beginning, I would hide, uh, you know, being cute and, and, and fashionable and pretty and fun because I didn't know that that was okay. Um, and we also weren't set up to believe it was okay. Yeah, um, that's, that's a whole conversation we should get. Into. Yeah, for a long time. So I would, you know, I still had me and I've always reflected clothes to me was art. Shoes to me was art. Makeup to me was art. Um, and, you know, taking that to the gritty stages of New York or Chicago or LA, I would get, obviously because of my personality, I would get a lot of positive feedback, but 
there was also that part where it was like, you probably need to wear a hooded sweatshirt and like sneakers. Cause that's kind of what everyone does. And that's just going to keep you that. So no one's distracted. And, and I remember thinking that it didn't make me feel that great, but I did fall into it for a period of time. And I look back at like a lot of video and I'm like, man, I used to wear like, like really baggy flannel shirts, like things to be more boyish. And it still was me, but it wasn't who I am today for sure. Um, that's interesting to me because I feel like women are told at, because we somehow have have come to bear the responsibility of other people's reactions to us. We are taught to premeditate everybody's possible reaction and find the softest landing place, find the least offensive place to start with. And it just really gets my goat because I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, yes. I mean, I, I used to wear like boxes on box suits on TV and cut my hair real short. And I'm like, but, but it's, it's such a different world now where people can, women can be multidimensional and it has to leave to you because I look at you as, um, you know, an overall person and product and your fashion is part of who you are. I said the short bangs. I mean, your hair is you, you. your whole lip. I mean, if you follow, you know, JC on Instagram, I call you Jess, but, um, you know, it's your, your visual vibe is very much part of your brand. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, that's creativity and artistry. And I think before the boom of the influencer boom, when YouTube launched in 2006, I think a lot of people were married to what women were supposed to look like in comedy and specifically in general, if you were in fashion, you were in fashion, you couldn't be in comedy. If you were in comedy, you were in comedy and you couldn't be in fashion. And that was something where I kept beating at it. And I was just like, no, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep going. I think there's something here. I think we can create more by having our hands in all these different pots. I think that you could be a really charismatic, funny chef. I think you could be a really talented, charismatic mom. I think that you can do all these things. And I know that there's not a market for it yet. That's what I would say 10 years ago. Yeah. Now there is an incredible market where you basically create your own business and your own brand. And then you decide which projects you're going to say yes to, and you decide how you're going to write specific things. And now you know, I was wanting offers so badly 10 years ago, and now offers don't stop. Mm -hmm. And they're interesting offers. They're not just that typical kids, get out, kids. (laughs) Get out. Um, My my really loving mother, motherly side is coming here right now. Just yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was when we messed up the time today. I was like, oh God, her kids are going to be home and not in school. Okay, you know what? Um, that post is for. We're going to edit all that background sound out. Great, great. I couldn't hear anything. Um, yeah. So I, I think now, like now, going on tour, you know, it, it comes down to so much, Sunny. Too. It's like as a woman going on tour versus a man going on tour. Let's just like break that down to it's like bare bones. Like you have to be smarter and safer and more aware and more like cautious of who you are staying with, where you are going to the club, how you're going to get there and back. All those things counted. So when I dressed up in a hoodie and sweatshirt, I understood at the point that it was for my safety. But now you know, other male comedians are on board. They want to make sure you get home safe now. Now people are starting to wake up to the challenges I think a lot of women had in comedy prior to when I was a kid doing comedy. And I kind of like didn't really have an idea of how dangerous it was to fly in the middle of the night to like podunk Iowa to do a show um, as a pretty girl. And I think now it's changed. 
Well, this dovetails perfectly into another topic I wanted to specifically address with you. And we have to talk about this. The Me Too movement that swept through the entertainment industry. I mean, it, it, it touched every industry in general and things came to light where I think people um, finally saw the, the ways that women are, are spoken to and dealt with in, in these like very subtle sort of ways that maybe the world hadn't seen before. It was a great Overall, I feel like lesson worldwide, right? I, I wonder though how you think that impacted both positively and negatively your career specifically, because comedy as an outsider, it seems like it thrives on discord a little bit, right? And like being able to call out stuff. Um, did Me Too change the way your job works now? It emphasized what I think I was already aiming to do in my work. Um, it allowed the doors to swing open and stay open and not for me to go through and go, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, but it did validate a lot of behavior that I witnessed in my time coming up that How I was about that. Like, what's the craziest thing? <sighs> Girl, <laughs> I was. I would need my lawyer here to tell you the craziest thing, but I would imagine that it didn't, nothing terrible happened to me. You know, I, I can say that, you know, assault and all the uh, things that come with it is about power. It's not about whether or not I'm cute and they are attracted to me. It's all about power. It's power in that moment. It's power for that business. It's power to um, feel some way in order to get to their next moment. And I will tell you that there's been multiple instances just in general. And I, and I think across the board, it could happen at a bank. It could happen at an office job. It could happen in comedy. But I think the Me Too movement, it didn't start with comedy, but it started with men in entertainment that were high profile and the behaviors had similarities and the similarities were as follows either young women or women that did not have the power or women that were spoken to like this or women that were locked into certain rooms and it just kept going and going and going and then you watched other people talk about it more and then the more you know this is why twitter is such a positive thing in my eyes is it before that we just used newspapers to read the news and it was local to our community, but Twitter is a global newspaper. Now, misinformation does exist. Mm -hmm. That's something that you could see in, in The Social Dilemma, which is a great Netflix documentary that kind of breaks down how algorithms work in, in uh, obviously the apps that I thought were positive have negative um, connotations. People that don't have um, a good lifestyle choice will use Twitter for bad decision-making. And that's, that's the good and the bad when it comes to it. But I think that the Me Too movement allowed women to take hand in hand. And we were already kind of pushing for a lot of it. Prior to that, I was working with Equality Now and still am. And that's Gloria Steinem's kind of company as well with Jane Fonda. And they, you know, the Equal, White, Equal Rights Amendment was something that was uh, on the plate for so many years in the United States of America. And that, as brass tacks, is to protect women constitutionally across the board. Mm -hmm. And that just, if you are a mom and you are pregnant and you have a job, it is to protect your rights to make sure your money is still your money when you come back mm -hmm. from your motherhood. And that if you need to bring your child in one day, childcare is available. Things like that that are just not accessible across the board for everyday people. Um, and so it broke open that like, damn, and it like rushed in this and it wasn't meant, 
you know, and the good guys will tell you this, like a, a lot, I, I did a joke for a long time. A lot of white men are really, uh, they're not too happy right now because they have to like sit quietly and listen. And that was the joke, right? It was yeah. the joke. You have to sit quietly and listen. And a lot of them were like, you know, a lot of them had to go back. I had another joke where I was like, you know, I'm white, a white man's brain right now is like a Rolodex where they're going back and they're like, did I ever hurt anybody without their permission? <laughs> Did I ever non-consensually touch somebody? Like they have to go back. And that's that fear that was happening. Like I live off of that fear. That is what you should be thinking about those actions because I don't have to think about it. Mm. I didn't do behavior like that. It wasn't bred in me to have that kind of behavior. And there are moments on stage where I can flirt and be uh, kind of crass, but it comes from a loving place because I round out the joke. I don't get off stage and try to get 3,000 married men's phone numbers so I can go and have a crazy wild lifestyle. I would go home, order a steak to myself with a glass of wine and get ready for the next day of work. Mm -hmm. And that's the behavioral differences, I think, in men and women. We, we kind of not, I don't wanna say knew our place, but we were told our place. Right. We didn't think abusing power was an option. We were just stoked to get power. I mean, I was just relieved when I could like legitimately use a sick day that was given to me, like officially by the company. I mean, you know, hearing you talk and, and comedy is probably a very specific subset because you have a lot of, like you said, after hours and travel and things like that. And, you know, I'm thinking of even the things that I experienced working comments from people that from men that probably didn't even, like you said, realize they were programmed to say those things. And it, it just, um, I don't know. I just had to get your thought on that because I like to see the needle moving a little bit in the right direction and your, your job specifically. I mean, you get to like actually talk about this and make jokes about it and it doesn't make, I mean, that's what comedy is perfect for is to sort yeah. of look back on these big moments in society and reflect right with the sense. Yeah. But I will say this, son, like you, you asked, are there any negative effects from it as well? And this is what I will say to, you know, your listeners and to people and specifically in comedy, like we're creating in the Me Too movement, we're creating a spectrum of behavior. Um, people were saying this is going to everyone's going to start lying about behavior like this. And then then innocent people are going to be accused. And then all this, innocent people have been accused since the United States was created. So calm down. And now we're creating a spectrum of behavior. So if your behavior is the Aziz Ansari piece, someone was like, it's not notable. It's not a credible source. He is a comedian who just didn't take no for an answer. No specific assault was involved, but he didn't take no for an answer. That's on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And now he can fix his behavior from here on out. Louis C.K., is on a different version of that spectrum. And there are sources that tell you what he did in that process. And then you have, we'll use Chris, I'll just use, I mean, I could probably go on for days, but Chris D'Elia, young girls, underage, emailing. that, And again, other comedians being like, look, we if we knew we would say something, but they're right. Like no one comes home and is like, hey, you're never gonna believe this 15 year old I'm texting with. Like comedians don't do that. They keep it, people keep it private. It's shocking to me that it shocked so many people. I'm like, oh, you give like a giant, a, a group of well-to-do men a shit ton of power and access. And you're surprised that they're like sliding into people's DMs with like, like of, yeah, and 15 and then, then the behavior. And then you kind of go through all of the um, audio and video and you see like, you know, comments of like, you know, girls today that look 16, they actually look 21. And it's like red flag. 
Girls today, they always wear makeup. They always look older. Red flag. It's like, listen to me when I tell you these are red flags. And the law is law for a reason. Now, granted, 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 in the history of the United States, in the history of the world, relationships began at the age of 11 and 12 in a lot of societal like villages and et cetera. The point of these movements is to, again, move the needle and start to gear behavior to a more healthier mindset. Now that we know that young girls are not fully developed until a specific age, that's when we believe certain people should be allowed to engage in whatever sexual behavior or or marital behavior, et cetera. And then you still have certain states in the United States where marriage is allowed at the age of 16. Yeah. I mean, and you hear, I'm thinking of the girl, I can't remember, Courtney Stodden, right? The one who um, she was, I don't even know where she came from. She was the 16 year old that married that like 50, whatever year old actor. And, and you hear, and it's the perfect example of what you're saying, a power dynamic gone wrong. These are young girls who have no idea of who they are, who they are meant to be in the world. They have very little agency, even though they think they do, because we were all teenagers and we thought we knew everything and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, there is an element it's, it's called progress for a reason because we do better. We learn more. I mean, it's, it's easy to skewer the, the movement. I think people can look at that and say, oh my God, like you said, innocent people getting accused. Well, innocent women getting raped for decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, calm down, buddy. Like you just, this is your time right now. And you just need to, what you should be doing is listening to the stories and monitoring, monitoring your behavior. Right. And when you see good guys, you know, there's a lot of good guys in the room. Um, I always tell like the good men that aren't involved in uh, abusive behavior. They're the ones laughing. Yeah. Come hang out with us. Like you're obviously like, you're in a good place. You're good people. Like come work an environment. We need you. Yeah. I want to talk about your show. It's called the new American road trip. It was on Amazon prime. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love how you call yourself climate comics. So you are able to combine a really important issue with comedy and making it more accessible. Um, I know it was on already, but I want you to tell us sort of the concept behind the show and what it means to be climate comment. Of course. Yeah. The new American road trip was birthed out of the loins of an idea of where we could start uh, vacationing in a more sustainable way as Americans. I think Americans in general um, have a gluttonous idea of how vacations are supposed to operate. So they overconsume and they overuse and they feel like things need to be done three times as more because they've worked so hard. When in reality, it should be about sustaining the planet as well as much as sustaining your mental health so you can go back to your workplace. So we created this idea where we would do a cross-country road trip, the first of its kind, cross-country road trip in an electric car from San Francisco to New York City to end in the United Nations to discuss how climate and art and culture will be able to push policy in the future. And if you begin to create TV shows that teach kids how to grow their own food and to use solar power as opposed to relying on the electrical grid, so whenever you guys have your hurricanes, those you don't go days without power. Reteaching mannerisms that like we grew up in a steel city that was based on, you know, coal, steel, the world of uh, hardcore blue collar workers. And there that world, we I, I appreciate that world. It launched us into the Industrial Revolution. It was responsible for the creation of many, many buildings and bridges throughout the United States. But the truth of the matter is, is that it's not sustainable. And the real matter is not policy and politics. It's like, wouldn't you rather breathe really good air? Wouldn't you rather grow really yummy food? 
wouldn't you learn rather learn how to plant things for yourself so when a global pandemic happens, you and your family don't have to rush to Costco because you have all of your produce there. And it's about making it more exciting. Um, one thing I learned in comedy specifically, like, there is no bad, I mean, there are, but there's no real bad people in environment. Like there really aren't, they're happy. They wanna keep oceans clean. They wanna keep fish thriving. They wanna keep like sea urchin to be a delicacy, but they wanna monitor things. If you monitor the way the planet operates, you're gonna be able to keep her in good condition. She is a baby, just like you would have a baby. She of course is the mother earth, but she cannot continuously provide for herself if you're fracking and pulling out oil and resources all the time. It's disrupting the actual regular transition. So we started the show where I was like, we wanna fly out comedians. We wanna make it fun and make it as interesting as possible without it being like, you must learn something at the end of it. So we stopped in God, 13 cities. We did it in 13 days. I mean, I blacked out. We had a camera crew, we did it in 13 days. We started from San Francisco. We went to uh, Las Vegas, which is known now by 2025, they're going to have all solar power on the main Vegas strip. That's yeah. cool. I didn't know and, that. And MGM hotel is going to have like their own edible garden. So the restaurants in MGM will be pulling from the produce from their roof That's to keep it local. Cause when you think about frozen fish and how it transfers, it's like things like this, not that you can grow fish on the roof. That would be amazing, but just vegetables in general. And then we get to, we went to Utah and we saw ghost, ghost rock, ghost city, ghost something. And then we get to Colorado and of course, Boulder, like they're the leader in this kind of things where they're like, they create bike lanes as opposed to um, all car to car to car lanes, like allowing people to like have their own lanes, like in Europe, man, like in Denmark, you know, they have like actual streets dedicated to to cyclists. And there's so many people that are rushing to get places. They're like, ah, oh, I hate cyclists. I can't stand them. But it's like, why, why not? Mm -hmm. You can go and meet friends place to place, like in a city like that, that's small enough. Right. You should dedicate a couple of streets to that because that allows people to get off the road. So you're not stuck in five hour traffic in Los Angeles, California or New York City. Um, and then we make it to God, we went to Kansas and that was a perfect place to install um, windmills because it's nothing but wind in kansas like that's a thriving booming business and a place for jobs so we ended up staying like a little bit longer in kansas than we planned on um and i found way more uh, varieties of slim gyms than i'm okay <laughs> with um not the best uh, local cuisine <laughs> oh my god i mean i mean we, we did what we could but we were just like oh we should open up and restaurants and that that sparked ideas because here's why here's what it is son it's like Electric cars are happening. I have a lot of friends right now that have Teslas. I have a lot of friends that have Chevy Bolts. Um, we use a Chevy Bolt to drive across. And it was like 265 um, miles to the charge. It's insane, yeah. So you can go anywhere for 265 miles. But where do you charge up? And what we noticed was there's a business for this. But it was like, you know, we were charging up in like desolate parking lots or Walmart parking lots. And all you could do was like go to a Walmart. But really, in my head, I would get like super excited. And I'd be like, these these charging stations, they need to be campgrounds for families that can spend time cooking outside and being in the outdoors, whether they're state parks or something. And then when they come back, their car is charged and they've had an outdoor adventure and then they move on to the next location. And I like JD Rockefeller was like, um, can you write a proposal for us? And I was like, how am I the only one what? creating this idea? 
did you, did you follow up on that? Yeah, they gave me some money. They gave me oh, some money. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Out of all of the jobs that you've done, because like I said, you've like sort of been in every element of, of comedy and of, of show production and writing things. What has been either the most impactful, I'm guessing that was up, to, up there for sure, mm-hmm. or the most um, personally moving in some way when you look back at what you've done so far? Oh my God. Oh, personally moving. I mean, you know, I just, I think that there's so many jobs that, th- that job specifically moved me. I felt like I, I wept a few times. Um, just because I don't have kids, but I can imagine what, what fear is rushing through a parent's mind at, you know, the possibility that their child will be living in a place that's going to be flooded or is going to be living in a place that, you know, the big earthquake is a coming or, you know, that the resources will be tapped and it'll be so hot that they can't go outside. Like, I don't want that for people. Um, I don't want your air quality to cause asthma in your children. I don't want your child to be reaching for sugar because they're not educated about food resources. And I don't want, you know, diabetes to be a part of people's lives. And there's so much research. Um, And when you take out the middleman of politics and the anger, because it really comes down to policy, it's, you know, how can what I write and create move someone enough to when they're watching it, they go and they research who in their town is the most actively moving forward to like environmental policy and mm-hmm. good ideas. And then they learn their name and then they vote on that ballot. Like that is what I write and create for is to push people into policy. Now, it's not all what I do. I, I think the most like beneficial job for me was honestly working for Rachel Zoe. I learned a lot with her. Yeah. She was a huge part of teaching me what a good shoe is. <laughs> and, but also like, seems like really down, like really she's cool. So chill. She's so chill. She's so funny. Like I, she pulled me in her office. Like she's never been a host of a show before. So they brought me in to like work with her to teach her how to host. And like, I would write these scripts in her, in her voice and we would laugh nonstop. And like, I would pitch really like dorky ideas that she would do. Like she was super down her and Eva Longoria were like down to do this telenovela that I wrote. I was like, I just think it's going to be really funny if we do this like close up shot of Ava and then close up shot of you. And it's like just about fashion and it's like super dramatic, but it's like about new shoes for spring. And that was to me like giving, they allowed me to have my own creativity in that space on a big budget. Um, and it taught me like how to move to the next show and how to move again to the next show after that. And I, I liked working with, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Eva Longoria and Rose Huntington Whiteley and all these people that were high profile women of different genres and different age brackets and different jobs, truly. And having them come in and, me work with them in a comedic way and having it be listened to and heard really like showed me, Oh, I I have put all this work in for a reason and what I'm doing is working. So I'm going to keep moving in this direction because it's obviously like it's, it's fluid and it fits that formula. And it's not to say every star is that way. I mean, there are plenty of stars that are pieces of crap. I've just not, we have to get just, just, Spartan to Spartan to scoop on like the celebrities. Please, I'm just dying to know. Big reader of blindgossip.com. Think about all the conspiracy theories all the time about the actors. So, yeah. like, some juice, something good. 
Oh my God. Oh, don't put me in that position, son. No, you don't have to name names. Well, I mean, I just feel like, well, what? who do you want to know about? And I'll tell you if I have a story. I mean, tell us something about Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> she actually okay. pretty like, nice and normal though. Yeah. I've got a great story about Reese. Um, uh, Reese. Okay. So Reese comes in, she's super professional. She is, um, I mean, an actress is an actress, uh, a truly like can turn it on and can get you your lines and deliver that soundbite and get you out. So your day is not long and you're, you, she has given you your best. And so there was obviously like an intimidation factor of knowing that like, Cruel Intentions, Reese Witherspoon's me walking through that door and I have a specific amount of time to get these beats out and to make sure that I have all of everything in line. And she was professional enough where it was, at first you're, as a comedian, you're like, they're not always gonna be in a fun mood. So you need to read human beings. That's a comedian's job is to read them. You don't wanna charge at them. You don't wanna be the funny one because they have a job to do and it's not about you, it's about them. So we have a bottle of uh, wine in Reese's dressing room and she comes in, she's very professional, very like her team is like, she has to be out of here uh, seven o'clock sharp. She has a heart out, let's, let's go, let's move, let's go. And then the wine cracks open and then like one glass in, two glasses in. Then we got a three glass drunk, Reese Witherspoon on our set and she's to die for. Is she funny? So funny. Her Southern comes out and she's oh just so, she's just like, pour me another. And then like the people are like, she has a heart out. She's like, I don't have a heart out. She stays like two hours longer. It was like a dream. She's hugging everybody. It was my birthday on set. So she's like, happy birthday, sweetheart. I just adore you. And I'm like, I'm never, big fan. Never going to probably see you again, but such a fan. Wait, what project was that? That was on one of the um, episodes for Rachel. <sighs> that yeah. is, I mean, yeah. I'm crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, Jess. Oh my god, there's like so many memories. It's just so cool to see you and hear how well you're doing. And I'm just thinking back to like in high school, like band camp. I have this very vivid memory of us, like before a football game. Uh, remember oh. we were in those sweatpants when we would like travel and we were waiting, sitting in front of the auditorium and like getting ready to go. And you were doing this dance. And I was like, this girl is like really fun. I mean, this big, you were like as big as so my thin. <gasps> the so thin. Still the tiniest, but like you were like a wisp of a human. And just, I just feel like I have to let everybody know you've always been energetic and full of life. I mean, I'm just not surprised that you landed where you landed. But oh, you're I, so sweet. That's that's very kind. I would I would argue that it was, you know, I was surrounded by a bunch of really loving people too. You know, if I was if I was not surrounded by people that wanted to laugh and wanted to be in the present moment, who knows if I would have, you know, really molded to be who I was. And I and that's to the city and to the, you know, to the testament of our school and our system and um, you know, we got very lucky. We got to go to school at a very, very good time there. They've had some complications since you and I have passed yeah. um, through that system. And, you know, I, you know, deep down to me, it, when you make it big is when your high school asks you to come back and like do something for them. So I think that's always nice when like I get the English teacher, like if you're ever in town and you want to come and, you know, do a reading with the students, I'm like, then you made it pretty big. That's so cool. I know. It's sweet. I have to ask you about you like many comedians veer into dark territory. You've been through a personal tragedy with the passing of your sister that you're very open about. Yeah. 
Um, we hear often as um, consumers of comedy that comedians are very often some of the most emotional and, and um, emotionally deep and sometimes um, carry the most pain out of anyone you would expect. I guess the first part of this question is, is that true? And the second part of this question is, has comedy helped you to find peace with your sister's death at all? I would say this has helped me find peace. Oh, oh my God, he's so cute. <laughs> she just woke up right now, literally just woke up. So I wanna make sure I give her the attention she deserves as she goes to pee. Um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, prior to my sister's passing and for your listeners, it's 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 a really it's a tragedy um, what has happened, I think, across the board globally when it comes to the global epidemic uh, of the opioid crisis. And I think that that was something that I never really was a part of. Um, I know you you and I, I think, shared the same no where we were just like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm just going to get out of town and be on the TV. But whatever it was, you know, drove us to be in a direction that way. And I think my my sister and I's connection was so strong um, in the sense that she was a bit more rebellious in that department. So for me to go off and be working and to, you know, randomly get a call about um, the passing of my sister and having my mom be the one that found her and having it be because of a heroin decision that opioids move into heroin, you think I, that's not supposed to happen to me. That's not how my family operates. That's not me. And then there's, you know, shame and embarrassment. But then when the veil got lifted and I began to see that it was a global epidemic that, I mean, people all over the world were experiencing this addiction that only drove them from there on out. I began to really not necessarily process it in the time, but Comedy was really hard for me the year that she passed. It was incredibly hard. I was working the most I was ever working. And um, I my hair was falling out. I mean, it was like things that were just not what you thought were going to be a part of your world. Like that was it was it was shocking. And I was at a show. I was performing for the troops and I got the call and I had to fly back. And, you know, you go into survival mode, producer mode. I produced, you know, the funeral. I produced the back and forth. I produced, you know, the family members. I produced the conversations. I, I kept going and going and going. And then eventually when my job lifted, I had like I was on a hiatus. That's when the grief really came in. And that grief you know, I, I can tell you this, the, the being by the ocean was the best thing for me. I moved from the city to the, to the sea, um, in this like quaint little cottage. And I just grieved and I 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 kept doing it. And I kept asking questions. And that was at the same time when I was actually, you're going to love this, but like, because I was grown, I was raised Catholic. I actually didn't know that like outer space existed. <laughs> what? I, follow me on this journey. I like, I did not know. I thought God lived in the clouds and that was like the it. That was it. <laughs> You're just not a ringing endorsement for a Catholic school. Yeah, because I thought like we lived in a snow globe. I don't know what they taught me, but it was definitely not like that there was an expanding universe with right. millions of other planets. So at the same time, I was actually experiencing this like heightened sense of, wow, mortality is real. We are on one planet and there are bazillions of other planets and it you know it would soothe me was like i you know deep down Lindsay's probably like bouncing from planet to planet like those are the things that i did on stage to help me talk about it and then eventually um i got an email from like the colbert show 
And, uh, and, and still to this day, I'm trying to perfect a set about the opioid crisis as now Sackler, the, the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical company that's responsible for it is in, you know, hot, hot, hot water with the government in the United States and case by case basis of how kids, uh, you know, that are young are getting a hold of these cer certain things. And, um, I developed a set and I worked on this set and I worked on this set to, to try and get some of that darkness out. And to your to your comment before, to me, comedians aren't the darkest, saddest people. What they are, are people that are able to process in real time the deepest, darkest, saddest events and make them into something more tolerable to discuss. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of people would really benefit from talking about these deep, deep, dark, demons that have not been there necessarily their fault, but have happened to them. Because uh, a lot of growing up, maybe it's Catholic too, was, you know, hiding it, right. um, being quiet about pain, not showing pain, be tough, be strong, be tough. But in the real like mix of things, now I have people from all over that see that set that I've done. Um, that was really hard for me to do. The first time I ever really talked about it on stage was 2018. And that was, you know, my lip is trembling. I'm like gripping onto the microphone for dear life. And I'm holding down because it's so painful to have to re, um, reminisce about something that I had no control over and to lose a sibling. No one prepares you for that. They prepare you for your grandparents and your parents, but no one says, Hey, the possibility that someone one age above you is going to disappear one day and you're going to be left with merely memory. Um, and also like it's a you know a dire situation globally and it's like oh okay um i would say that comedians if if you do that if you do it right and you go to grief counseling and you have a good therapist to communicate with because it's not your friend's responsibility it's not your boss's responsibility it is your responsibility to move through the stages of grief and to to actually process it um i have a lot of people that have still not processed deaths from years ago and it it is it, it's heartbreaking to see because they it comes out in different ways it comes out in ways that you can't control and now that i've gone to the other side um my empathy has, you know, skyrocketed. Yeah. I now can see a sense of empathy and power and grace that nothing could have taught me. And I, you know, I don't necessarily believe the way my mom believes about the heaven process. You know, I, I think, you know, in my head, I want her reincarnated as like a hawk that's like soaring through the skies. You know, we all have our own point of view of what the end or the beginning is, and it's not right or wrong. Um, but it did help me structure story and it, it helped showed me what love was. And it processed with me like how fragile um, a human being's life is mm -hmm. and how it could be unexpected. And, you know, really like the, the hug, hug each other like it's your last day, things like that are just so really, truly honest to God true. Um, because it made, it made me a better, stronger woman. I was already on that path. And thank God I kind of, I started meditating years before Lindsay's passing. And I think that also really like, it gave me this sense of if I focus on my breath and I'm in my moment right now, I could conquer everything. I can feel these emotions and think these thoughts, but they are not me. Mm -hmm. And that's going to allow me to keep moving and hustling because the future is what I want it to be. Um, 
And, you know, I'd, I'd love for her to come back. I don't know if there's a drug for that, but I think uh, if ayahuasca is the drug for that. Ayahuasca, yeah, ayahuasca. Yeah, and I think, you know, with comedy, it's like, you got to talk about this stuff. I have young women um, going through opioid crises themselves and they reach out to me and they say, you know, how, you know, what do I do? And I send them that link. I have them watch that. They feel almost instantaneously better about the journey ahead. Um, And because, you know, in Catholicism, they don't necessarily prepare you for grief. They kind of, they prepare you for Jesus's death, but no one really else's. Sorry, she's eating the microphone right now. That's okay. What kind of dog is she? She's a a, a long-haired English wiener dog. She's so cute. I want to bite her. Yeah, she wants to bite you, believe it or not. <laughs> I love Rage. You're, talk- you're talking about passing, and not to keep kind of going back to this whole cultural thing, but... Um, I, our family, I, I'm just having this vivid memory at every um, funeral we had. And there were a lot because we're related to so many people. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, were it an open casket, we would always be encouraged to touch the body. Like we would go pray. And I mean, my mom, when her mom passed was, this is going to sound so kooky to so many people, but having witnessed it, I, I just have to say this. Um it was a step in acknowledging the reality of it and not being as scared. Um, but you're right. I do think that's probably a minority kind of situation. We were taught this is something we're going to talk about until your ears bleed. Like my mom and dad would drill, like, let it out. Go touch the dead body of your grandmother. If it makes you feel better, don't be scared of it. Don't be, but, um, you know, it's, I, I just love hearing your, the part of your process and how you, how you came to understand or, or, put a story to what happened, not to demean it in any way. But I do think that's an important part of processing is understanding your belief system. It sounds like you had your meditation or routine in place that helped you to process it. People are feeling a great sense of loss right now uh, as a country. And I mean, just hearing you talk about your process and sort of making it feel less strange is just so helpful because we all will be in that spot or have been in that spot. And I think the collective grief is just immense right now. And I just find people are relying on routines like that and over talk if you have to, you know, um, go outside, get your fresh air, do your meditation and all that stuff. It's yeah. Just- and don't rely heavily. You know, I think a lot of people rely heavily on, uh, you know, wine and booze yeah. and smokes and things that are just not going to be beneficial for the psyche in the end. And there's no judgment there. I've done the same. I had a happy 2014 where I just did all the cocaine. Believe me. <laughs> I did it. Now, I didn't do anything my whole life, but in 2014, for some reason, I was like, I'm oh, doing cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got like good innocence of school. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, don't worry, Sonny. It gave me psoriasis. So I learned my lesson. Warning. I feel like that is like the parental warning on this. Episode. Parental warning. Just so you know, like I had beautiful, I still have gorgeous skin, but like not as good as it was before. Yeah. Cause it, don't do drugs. Yeah. Don't do drugs. It's just not going to be beneficial. And I think like the collective grief that you're speaking of, you know, I think it's, it's again, society is in better shape than it was 150, 250, 350 years ago. People were getting slaughtered left and right. Casually villages were being burned down. We're in a much more um, humane situation than we were in. Now, this is to say that it doesn't mean that it's perfect right now, but we have to kind of put our ideas into the right 
space, which is, okay, what can we do? All right, we're going to vote. What are we going to vote about? Okay, this is what we'll vote about. We will decide if uh, this person, which I, you know, I'm such a sucker. I'm like, even when they're bad, I do think leaders have it good hearts. I'm such a sucker though. I really am. That's like a true Pittsburgh quality. No, I don't think you're a sucker. I think there's real value in people like you walking the earth right now. There are too many people who know all the answers right now and they're all on my Facebook page. Okay. My God. I just like, can somebody just trust each other that we're going to move each other. We're going to rise. We're going to rise up together. We're going to believe in one another, even if it's not exactly the, the, the astute way to speak. It's a different version. I just don't really want to believe that all these horrible people are in power. And I don't think that that's the case, but I understand that there is evil. Um, I have witnessed it firsthand in Hollywood. So I know, I know. Listen, don't think I'm not going to call you for a second episode part two. I mean, girl, there's so much more. I'm changing my lighting here because for some reason it's like getting dark as could be, but I don't know why. Now it's like, like I'm a porn, I'm on a webcam now. It looks like. Hold on one second. Nine a minute. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, I just, you know, when it comes to being positive and thinking the best of things, I don't think that that is a naive ate. I think that that is a strength mm-hmm. um, because you can really process and move through hard situations like a global pandemic when you allow yourself to grieve momentarily, but then structure a plan for one week, two weeks, three weeks to give yourself that like, hey man, we gotta keep moving. We gotta keep jogging. Let's go kayaking. Let's do all these things that we can't normally do while we're in this pandemic world. And that's gonna get you six months ahead, seven months ahead, eight months ahead. This will not be forever. This will be for now. And of course, I wanna go back to cruising. I'm a comedian on cruise lines. I loved my job. It was my favorite thing to do, even though people were like, how could you do that? I was like, oh, travel the world and That's eat like so fun. Yeah. Surf and turf and get like massages in every port. Okay. You, <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm fine, sweetheart. <laughs> um, but if it's not safe, it's not safe. You know, I'm 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 fine with that. Like I'm I'm actually down in Port Canaveral quite frequently, and I'll make sure I stop over to say hi next time. Of course, you have to if you're not yeah scared away by the utter chaos of my house and existence. Then Hilarious. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it won't be for a while, son. So maybe they'll be grown up by then. Maybe like, yeah, high school graduation, just in time for their grad parties. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Jess, you are just, have always been a ray of sunshine and I'm so grateful for you coming on. I heard you back on, oh God, it must've been two years ago on Natch Butte, which is another fave binge of mine. And I was like, what is life? One of my favorite sunshiny people from high school on one of my favorite podcasts. I have to call her again. Jackie's a dear friend. We had some, we've had some great times in our lives. We've had great, great times. I, I can see knowing what I know of your personality and your soul, why, why you guys vibe. Like, yeah. Very genuine, funny, good girls. So tell us where we can find you, follow you, all the things. Sure, absolutely. I am available on Twitter. It's where I actually talk to most people. I would love to engage with any of your fun, happy, positive people. Um, at J-C-C-O-C-C-O-L-I. It's my full name. And I'm on Instagram as well. If you ever want to pop in for some jokes or some puppy videos or some like I'm on tour. I'm not sure when this will air, but I'm in New York uh, next week. Um, until October 28th, um, if it doesn't get canceled (laughs) because of the second wave. Um, 
but otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, California as much as I can to do safe outdoor shows. And I'm always online um, and, and here to chat about anything climate related. So by all means, shoot me a hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Girl. I appreciate you. Thank you for arranging this. And I, I just can't wait to see your children. I see them on the Instagram all the time, but I really want to meet them in real life. Don't you have 12? Yeah. 14. No, just Here's, I, I think I'm a secret breeder. I like, I thought I was going to stop it too. The third one was a surprise and I'm like, I want more, but I'm an old lady. <gasps> no. You're going to have more? No, we're not going to. No, no. But like, God, unlocked in me. I'm not. Right. Yeah, you're placenta unlocked, girl. Spilled <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, it's a, it's a real, it's a real free talk about comedy. I mean, just I'm sure you have a you have a nephew, right, or a, a niece. Or I nephew. have, I have, I have a nephew. I have a godchild. I I don't think I'm gonna have kids. I mean, I say that to you now. I'm 36. I just, it's never been something I've wanted. I think this is like. That's a good real treat. <laughs> um, we'll see. Maybe we'll reach out. Maybe in a year, my mind will change. But I think right now, I like where my my boobs are at. They're at a really great height. You're good. I, I will, like, the one benefit of having small boobs. I was just thinking. Oh, sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm so proud of you, by the way, for not getting boobs. I've always like I just love my small boobs, and you had small boobs since we were young, and I just it looks great with a deep V. Yes. I'm like, do you, uh, you know, it would be a whole problem from here on up. If I got boobs, I would look like a linebacker. God built me for speed. Okay. Not comfort. <laughs> I just have to, I got to keep them little so I can yeah. do them. Yeah, cool. baby. They look good. You look great. Always is. I haven't aged a day and I just love that about you. That's well, the Botox, but thanks. I know. My I, I haven't gotten in. I'm glad I waited before I did it because I have full expression for you. I'm going to get shot up next week. Okay, well, I think I have maybe like three or four more weeks before I go because this one is my thing because I use it on stage so much. I'm always like, what's yeah. wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, you need like, I, I tell my guy, I'm like, give me newscaster Botox. I need to emote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one time, I don't know if you've ever had this where they accidentally, I don't know if they were in a rush or something and one eyebrow goes higher. Oh God, that's the worst day of my life. I like went in and I was like, never do that to me again. <laughs> I know. I look insane. Until I start looking really old in like eight months. And no, I think we've got some more time. I think we've got good genes. Italian genes are good. You just like drink marinara at night and you're going to be fine. Right. Bye, JC. Thank you so much, babe. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we will be back with live episodes of We Gotta Talk on Facebook. Facebook.com slash We Gotta Talk. Um, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern. I almost forgot for a second. And then of course the podcast episodes drop every Thursday morning, bright and early. Thank you guys so much for listening. Do please subscribe, rate, review. All of those things make a huge difference in getting these episodes out to people who might enjoy them or find them useful. And especially on Apple podcasts, that's huge. All right, guys, thanks again. I'll see you next week with some more goodness.